This is Connor. And this is Paul. And welcome to Silver Screamers! Ah! Your genre jumpstarting decade defibrillating film podcast. This is a good day to podcast. It is a good day to podcast. I've got an interesting comment about that later. So, we're back! And to you, it seems like next week, but to us, it's about 18 months later. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, yeah we, we had a bit of a break. After making three episodes, we thought, you know what, we're going to have a little break. And a year and a half later, we're here to finally record our fourth episode. It was so much content in the first three episodes, we said we couldn't possibly put another episode out there. It would just be overload. And we worked very hard on them. There's a lot of editing involved. Yeah, no, I suppose what happened was, it's probably fair to say neither of us are particularly techy. And uh, I am kind of techy. I'm more techy than you. I'm not good at websites, okay? I'm not good at setting up websites and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I've I've got a, a, a sufficient level of tech. Okay, yeah, fair enough. You've done all, everything so far tech-wise has, has been done for you uh, by you, so that's fair enough. But our dear friend David, who who who's promised to be a guest in a future episode, he uh, helped get our website off the ground, and it's up now. And the other episodes are there now, and we we wanted to wait until that was up and running before we just created a big backlog. So, so that, that's our excuse. Um, that's actually a terrible excuse. We could have been recording all this time and had so much material for the website, but there you go. It's www.silver-screamers.com. So go there now and check it out. There we have our list there. Our list of, <laughs> our list of two, uh, soon to be three. But we actually did record an episode of Flatliners that isn't this one. We recorded another one and, and the quality was pretty bad and i hold my hands up i was like it's fine we'll just put it up you know every podcast has a rough episode but connor was like no our hordes of fans deserve the best well in my head we do have hordes of fans but uh at the moment i think it's just friends and family that listen to this actually i think they only listen to the first episode but there you go that's a start. I think we have 20 listens or something. I got so excited when I thought 20 listens and we haven't even put it. About 12 of those are us listening to it. Well, we haven't even put it up on social media, even our own one, though. So uh, we're waiting till we build a, a bit of uh, content <laughs> until we hit our stride. So, so 2020. <laughs> uh, we do actually have an Instagram, though. You can go to the website and follow us in on Instagram. What's the Instagram page? I think it's just Silver Screamers without the dash at Silver Screamers. I, I don't know. Um, um, yeah, we'll, it's we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> it's in the link anyway on our website, our cool new website. Thanks, David. You can go and follow us there on Instagram and eventually Twitter and Facebook. We don't have those set up yet. Yeah, we'll, we'll get them up. I think I think we want to get more comfortable with the episodes and we want to. The list is. I think when we, when we build a backlog, the thing about film podcasts, a lot of the film podcasts that I listen to. I mightn't listen to every single episode. Um, I might only listen to the episodes about the films I'm interested in. So I think it would be nice. I think it's a good idea for us to, before we put ourselves out to the big bad world, we have a couple of episodes that at least everyone could like one episode. And then when they realize how good those episodes are, they can trickle down. All our episodes are amazing. So you have to listen to them all. Exactly. But, you know, we need 
we need lots of films to attract lots of people and then when we pull them in with those films they can listen to the other ones see except that shitty one we did of so of flatliners which we're now redoing yeah yeah so we figured out that the problem was that we had recorded it on mono setting and we had also i think we had recorded it just on the laptop speaker not on our big fancy professional microphone uh so the sound quality was really bad and i don't i think our energy was kind of low that day so we're going to try and keep the energy up for flatliners ironically (laughs) yeah i have a cold so i have to apologize if my voice is a bit croaky but i am going to enunciate i have to enunciate anyway oh i realized before you go on that we're four well this is fourth episode four isn't it so it's episode three because our first episode is episode zero but it's our fourth episode if that makes sense. <laughs> Not really. Because our first episode... Yeah, I get you, but it's episode three because the first one is episode zero, but it's actually episode four. Maybe we should have, like, numbered these better. No, it's episode... F- this is episode <laughs> three, yeah. but it is our fourth episode because it's our third film. So this is our th- third episode of Silver Screamers, but our fourth episode in total. I mean, kind of. I mean, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Our third episode following the format. Yes. Our fourth film that we are we are critiquing. Third film we're critiquing. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be another while before we start putting these uh, on social media. No. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Well. Anyway. So flatliners, eh? <laughs> no. No. Before we get into that, we are however many episodes in, and we haven't mentioned magic. I don't think so far as Paul munches on his lunch on his roll. That's a good time there, Paul. I'm sick. <laughs> right. Uh, but Magic is, um, you'll see her on our website. She's a lurcher breed of dog. She's kind of like a greyhound cross. She's smaller than a greyhound, but she's uh, black and lovely. And uh, she's our little mascot. So she's very important to the show as well, even though you don't get to see her or hear her. Um, but she is kind of wandering around sniffing at her heels most of the time and occasionally you get like a big schnoz in the crotch when she's looking for a bit of attention yeah what would you say magic's favorite film is i think it's on the website isn't it oh i think beethoven i think you said or something beethoven and we had one really ironic one like the naked civil servant i think yeah oh there she is oh there she is she's pitter pattering around she doesn't actually bark or do anything much. She kind of whinges when she wants something, but she's a really bad communicator. She will just kind of stare at you and just go, hmm, and then you have to kind of figure out, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Do you want to go for a W-A-L-K? Anyway, so on to Flatliners. Flatliners, the nineteen. this is our 1990s decade for our cult classic films. Yeah, um, this was your selection, Connor. And it was fine. Yeah. I regret nothing. Yeah, it was grand. It was it was an unusual film. I, well, it's a weird film that treats itself like a normal film. I, I had never heard of Flatliners before you suggested it, like 10 years ago. <laughs> I've since seen it three times now, and I, I don't know if I see it again. Probably we haven't seen the new 2017 reboot. No, initially... I, I when you suggested Flatliners, I didn't know anything about it, and I thought it was going to be more of a straight up horror. And until I saw the film, 
I avoided the trailer, even for the new one. And I think, judging from the trailer, the new film seems to be more of a straight-up horror. And it didn't do well at all. It flopped. I think I got terrible reviews. The, the 1991, it wouldn't be like a film I would adore. But it had things to say. Um, and I think there's a lot of content to talk about. So I think it was probably a good selection. I'd be curious to talk about why it has developed a cult status as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of content in it. It's a, it's a bit of an odd film. And I'm going to talk about Joel Schumacher a bit later on because he directed this film. And I don't know if the 90s would be considered his heyday, but he had a lot of crap in the 90s. He seems to go through a lot of decades with a couple of hits and a couple of misses. So I'll talk a little bit about that later on. I know nothing about the new movie. I haven't even watched the, the 2017 version of this. I haven't seen the trailer. I do know it was a flop, but I'd still be interested to look at it and see. I'm sure I'm sure it's exactly the same story with a few updates and a few different kind of twists and a few different kind of characters in that. I am From the trailer, I think it's just the premise of uh, a group of medical students self-inducing death and then reviving themselves to see what happens but I think the characters are different and I think the situation uh, the situations are different when they go under but I don't know I don't know for sure will we go into the synopsis and then we can dive into our thoughts take it away am I doing the synopsis this time am I doing it or are you doing it okay I'll do it Um, we're going to try and do something new ha 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 okay so we're going to try and do a synopsis so previously when we did the synopsis we had done we had done basically the whole episode had been us going through the beat by beat and then as we went through the beat by beat kind of reflecting on different scenes that we had thoughts on we might go back to that we're like I said this is still our third or fourth episode depending on who you ask and what time of the day you ask us but so we're, we're playing with the format. So we're going to try this and we're going to... So I'm going to try and do a two minute and 40 second synopsis of Flatliners, having done no practice or writing whatsoever. And really we're doing this because it took so long to actually watch the... You had to watch the film twice. You had to watch it and enjoy it and take down notes or whatever. But then you kind of had to watch it a second time and go through everything and like write down the, the scene beat by beat. It just took forever. And we're lazy like that. So instead we're going to do this mini synopsis. Okay. Here we go. So we see uh, this guy called Nelson, who's called Keeper Sutherland. And oh, sorry, the other way around. Keeper Sutherland is called Nelson, and he's uh, outside this big city with like really omeny sound music. And he looks at the camera and says, "It's a good day to die." And then you find out he's a doctor, and he meets his friends. Uh, Julie Roberts is Rachel, and then Kevin Bacon is David, and then uh, William Baldwin is Joe, and then Oliver Platt is Randy, and they're all doctors, even though. They call each other doctor, but I don't know, are they actually doctors or just studying to be doctors? And they're, uh, and Keeper Sutherland is getting them to do something with him, uh, to let him die and then bring him back. And they're all like, oh, I'm not doing that. And for some reason, Kevin Bacon is abseiling down his his um, his room because he got kicked out for saving a woman's life. I don't know why. And he's an army truck for some reason. And they all say no, uh, but then they say yes. And uh, Keeper Sutherland goes... Hang on, hang on, hang on. No, no, shut up, stop. Anyway, and then he um, goes under, and then he's like, in a, when he's dead, he sees these like fields and a tree, and then he wakes up and he's like, oh, that was weird. And um, then he he's in a blanket, and his friends are getting drinks, saying who's going to be the next to die. And then he sees all these neon things and a dog, and he's like, oh, that's a bit weird. And then the next person to go under is uh, um, 
the Joe, who is a big perv who records women when they're having sex with him, and then when he goes under, he sees lots of naked women, and he's all like, "Oh, it's kind of erotic." And then uh, the third person to go under is going to be Kevin Bacon, even though Julia Roberts wants Julia Roberts wants to do it, but he's like, "No, I'm doing it because I'm a man, you're a woman. That's the rules." And she's like, "Oh, that's annoying." And then so he goes under, but while this is happening, Keeper Sutherland's character uh, is being attacked by a little boy, and the other guy Joe keeps on seeing women in screen saying why are you recording me while we're having sex that's not cool and he's like oh and then Kevin Bacon goes under and he sees a train and he sees a little girl he used to bully and then he comes out and is like well that's weird did you guys see that and they're like oh yeah yeah and then Kiefer Sunderland is like oh this little boy beating me up and Julie Roberts goes under on Halloween and and then she sees her dead father and uh, uh, Kevin Bacon is like Kiefer you should have told us this and he makes amends with the girl that he bullied and the, the guy who's a big perv gets uh dumped by his fiance and uh keeper sutherland uh he he oh he what does he do he um no no he he really you realize that we find out he killed a little boy when he was a little boy and he goes under again to try and make amends and the others all save him and julia roberts sees her dad was a heroin addict and and then they're all like oh wow we're fine oh and his dad apologizes and that's the end of the film oh well the one second <laughs> With one second to spare, you can hear the timer going off. That was frantic. You spent about a minute and a half. You spent about a minute and a half talking about the first two minutes of the show, of the movie. And then you just kind of blitzed the rest and it made no sense. But well done. Well, you have to get the setup. The setup is very important. (laughs) We'll see if we keep that. We'll see how that sounds in editing. Oh my god, I, I've got heart palpitations after that. Jesus, some flatlining over here. Well, well done, Paul. That was a interesting, if not frantic, synopsis of flatliners. Yeah. So, okay, we'll we'll go into like some of the the plot nuances first, and 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 then we can go into maybe the overall theme and some of the characters. First of all, where is this university? There. It, it, it's the weirdest, largest, gothiciest university ever. They're literally doing autopsies in in a big hall or something with big Renaissance paintings all over the place. It's incredible. It's almost like a, a converted church or something, or a museum maybe. But they're they're also doing these autopsies in this building which is undergoing massive renovations as well and seems to leak everywhere <laughs> yeah um i think in the last episode you actually mentioned that it was in a real university in chicago do you remember that saying that yes <laughs> i do remember that now that you say it yeah i, I yeah so I, if that's true then it is a real university but it just seems peculiar one thing i i question they call each other doctors a lot but they're not qualified. Are they just doing that? I think interning doctors, you would still call doctor. Oh, okay. This Okay, so I want to go through some of the scenes that I was confused about. I mentioned this in the... I think everyone's confused after that synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mentioned Kevin Bacon initially is... The first time we see him, he saves someone's life, even though he's not... He didn't really have the authority to do what he was doing, and he's kicked out, and it's a real... You know, he's the hero that overstuff his stepped his mark but did the right thing and he's kicked out and that's all fine but when he, he's abseiling when when Keith or Sutherland uh, Nelson when he finds um David who's who's Kevin Bacon and kind of asks him will he take part in the flatlining project 
He's abseiling down his window. Now, the first time I watched that film, I didn't actually think anything of it. I just kind of accept that the film never treats that as a peculiar thing. Keith uh, Nelson never says, why are you abseiling down your window? Why? Why? Why was he doing that? I think it's just to set him up as being a bit of a risk taker, a rebel. As you said, he saved this woman who uh, he wasn't meant to save and has now been kicked out. So he's just... Uh, yeah, he doesn't play by the rules. He does his own thing when he wants to do it. It's a bit odd, but it doesn't. I, I actually, when I was watching it, it didn't it didn't strike me as being weird for some reason. Because the film just treats it like it's normal. the The way it's shot and the way the characters are interacting, you know, the, the films um, project a point of view, and the film's point of view for that scene is, oh, this is fine. It's only when you take a step back and realize. No, that that's weird. If if you called over to your friend and they were abseiling out their window, I mean, is it trying to say that we, was he sneaking out of the campus because he didn't want his superiors to see him leaving? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it goes, but I, I suppose they're all trying to set up. You know, you basically know the premise of the of the movie when it first starts, and Keith Sutherland's very quick in sort of saying what he wants to achieve. Um, and in order to do that, I suppose he needs risk takers. And maybe it's just to show that this guy is a bit of a risk taker, but also to show it's almost like he's storming out like a child, uh, you know, running away from home or something. Maybe it's to show that he's a bit immature, a bit childish. Yeah, but I actually think Kevin Bacon, uh, or David, we should call them the characters' names. I'm not going to remember the characters' names. No, it's it's Loratio, isn't it? Or? David Loratio. In, in the credit scene at the end, it, it says Loratio, Kevin Bacon. That's his surname. David Loratio is his full name. Are they all you call him? Anyway. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's true because he seems to be, of the five of them, maybe not including Randy, who's played by Oliver Platt, who, he's kind of like a poor man's Jack Black a bit, isn't he? I suppose he's the comic relief in this circumstance, but uh, he doesn't, he's, he's a very different acting style than Jack Black. Jack very over the top and loud, whereas this guy is much more uh, underplayed. Yeah, maybe. Um, he's definitely the 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 mo- least important character of the five, I would say. But um, I forgot, I lost my train of thought there. Um, oh yeah, apart from him, apart from him, I would say David is probably the most sensible of the five of them. He's you know he's pretty against this from the beginning. He only really does it. Because he feels that he's the best doctor and the best one to be there for Nelson if he does die and to bring him back. And the only reason he ever goes under, the rest of them, maybe not really Randy, but the rest of them all want to go under for various reasons. The only, um, uh, Kevin Bacon never wants to go under and the only reason he does is because he's protecting Rachel. So to say that he's kind of immature, I don't know if that is true because he... I think he comes across quite noble and quite a nice guy. No, he's noble and he's a nice guy and he does... Uh, he goes into this whole thing trying to protect his friends, I suppose, more than anything else. And since he's the... Well, he's the only self-professed atheist out of the group, uh, I suppose there's a certain curiosity to it. But his e- his ego has been bruised and... Um, by being kicked out, or not even... He wasn't even kicked out. He was suspended and then decided to leave medical school so maybe there's an immaturity there in how he took that suspension yeah perhaps they don't actually ever mention whether or not he has can 
does he stay by that? I mean, you, you never see him in any of the um, college scenes when they're in class or doing the autopsies. I don't think you see him in any of them anymore. So I think he has left, has he? Yeah, he's definitely left. That's That was the whole point of him abseiling out. He, the argument that he has with Kevin Bacon is, or sorry, with Kiefer Sutherland, and Kiefer Sutherland saying, you're a great doctor, you're only suspended, it's not a big deal. And he's like, no, they don't understand. And... Uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to hang around here when I was doing the right thing and I saved a life and they're kicking suspending me for that so see you later I'm out. It does seem like quite a childish thing really when you put it like that like his entire future and he's clearly a talented medical profess- uh, professional and just to you know it's not to throw his entire future you know out of the out of the cot over a principle. Anyway, um there's another scene is that all you do you want to say anything else about that scene with Kevin Bacon? I was wondering, he says, not not with Kevin Bacon there, but Keith Sutherland says at the start, uh, it's a good day to die. Now, I think he, I think that must be a saying from, I think they allude to it later on in the film, that it's like Greek mythology or something, that it's a, it's a reference to that. But interestingly, in Star Trek, the Klingons always say, it's a good day to die. And I was wondering, maybe that was a reference to Star Trek. <laughs> well, that's more your ballpark than mine. So if you say so... Well, you're going to have to brush up when I pick Star Trek genre sometime. I'll be a cheerleader of those episodes. We'll bring maybe a guest on who can who can bounce with you, bounce off you. I wanted to talk about the, the introduction to, of Rachel, who I, I think is probably... Uh, I'd say the three main characters in this are um, Nelson, Keith Sutherland, um, David, who's Kevin Bacon, and then Rachel. And then um, Joe and Randy are more supporting. Would, would that be fair to say? Oh, definitely, yeah. The, the Those three characters are, in most of the scenes, you learn most about them, and they also have the most prominent motives, I suppose, for going under, whereas, um, well, one of the other guys doesn't go under, and the uh, Joe. Joe is only really under for a very short period of time, and then it, it, it doesn't really, I don't find his, his story goes anywhere, so I think Julia Roberts, Keith Rizzolan, and Kevin Bacon definitely have to the most poignant experiences. Mm. But when we when we meet Julia Roberts at first, there's a ver- another. This is another p- weird scene that isn't treated like a weird scene. Okay, so we see her in her doctor's uniform, and she's by a hospital bed, talking to Beth Grant. Yes, who Beth Grant, who you will have heard of, heard us talking about in Donnie Darko, who we love. Um, she's also in this movie. We need to stop picking movies specifically because Beth Grant is in them. I disagree. I think we should just have a Beth Grant podcast. She's brilliant. I mean, she's only in this film, like Blink and You'll Miss Her. But she's good, even though that she's one little monologue and she's really good in it. Yeah, Connor's nodding. So, okay, so Julia Roberts is, and she has just lost a baby. Uh, and she had a near, near-death experience while losing the baby and she's describing this near-death experience to Rachel. And... Beside her bed are two people that aren't related to her. There are two other people that Julia Roberts has seemingly summoned. And both of these have also had near-death experiences. And the three of them are telling their near-death experiences to Julia Roberts at the same time. You know, like, they're not listening to each other. They're almost interrupting each other. And Julia Roberts is just like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly Julia Roberts realizes her her superior is coming over and she like runs away from them and leaves these two strangers who are talking about death beside this poor woman who just lost her baby. That's a bit odd. 
I didn't, again, you picking up on these things that are odd. I didn't really pick up on it as being odd. There's, uh, she's clearly interviewing them almost, you know, and these three people are in the hospital because they've almost died in some fashion. And, you know, rather than going around to each individual, she said, hey, guys, let's get together and have a bit of a chat about this and tell me what happened to you. Um, I think the scene is done well. There's clearly one of them. There's two uh, of the people, Beck Grant and then this other actor, um, who tell their stories and it seems all very believable. And then there's a third person who seems to just be <clears throat> making it up as she goes along and just kind of rehashing typical kind of uh, experiences that people say they have when they die. Like, oh, there was a lovely choir of music and there was a bright light and somebody saying, come hither and follow me and all that kind of stuff. But I think Julia Roberts kind of dismisses her to a certain extent. I was more confused about the setting of this of these hospital beds because it's more like a an army barracks infirmary or something where they're all just on these really crappy mattresses, uh, steel framed beds, just like hanging out in a big line. There's no privacy or anything. That's so true. It's like a wartime hospital wing. And also, this woman who who has lost her baby is in the same ward as an elderly lady who's having palliative care. So that's... Maybe they will be together, I don't know. But like that seems strange to put an elderly person beside a woman who has just... like I, I would have thought that she'd be in a maternity ward. You know, our maternity ward patients often in the same room as someone on palliative care. I think she. I think they're all just in the near death ward. Yeah, I suppose that goes down to the really interesting world that Joel Schumacher has created. Because I don't love Joel Schumacher, and we'll we'll talk a bit about him in a second. I don't love him, but I'll give him this: he has a very unique style, and the world that this is set in is peculiar and consistent consistently peculiar this gothic university slash hospital the apartments that all of these characters particularly nelson's i mean (laughs) this is another weird angle all of these are students okay and they all live in these incredible apartments all on their own at that nobody shares particularly nelson he he lives in this massive big apartment that's all white walls and it's beside the train and you know i don't want to jump ahead of ourselves but you know later on when he kind of wanders do uh, you know the scene when he kind of gets attacked by the little boy for the first time you know that th- th- there's all light bulbs he's in this underground room with his light bulbs hanging everywhere and there's there's dogs behind fences barking at him and there's like homeless people who know his name and it's all neon lit and every single sewer grate has steam coming from it i imagine from an underground train it's a, it's a weird but very uh, striking setting it's a it's a it's a weird and wonderful world which he's created which i think is meant to like the, the audience is meant to be brought through this dreamlike world which are sort of almost supernatural world uh which kind of reflects the feeling and the sense the the experiences that these people have when they go and flatline so it's not it's 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 meant to be quite dreamlike i suppose a bit ethereal a bit odd like uh someone's dream might be yeah nightmarish really yeah to a certain degree nightmares certainly the scene where keith 
Keith uh, Nelson <laughs> when he's when he has his first apparition when the others are in the grocery store the graffiti around the uh, on the walls are all these devilish faces like that's quite nightmarish I would say um, I suppose going the nightmarish uh, experiences that they have in the real world after they flatline are meant to replicate the the sins of their past and they're meant to give this uncomfortable feeling I suppose they're trying to coax them into realizing that they have committed sins that they need to identify and atone for and say they're sorry for uh, later on um okay so um could, do you want to talk about the different characters when they flatline or do you want to go through character by character what would you like to explore next Khan? i think we should give a little bit more detail about the characters and then talk about each of their flatlining experiences Okay, um, will we start with, um, I guess Nelson is probably the main character. Will we start with him? Yeah, I don't have a huge amount to say about him, really. I suppose what I have to say about him is more in line with what I want to say about all the flatliners in general, because I, I'm really curious as to what's actually happening here, um, be it supernatural or be it um, psychosomatic. Um, so I don't really have any thoughts on him individually. Well, he's clearly egotistical. He's a a great manipulator. He manipulates Kevin Bacon into uh, helping him. He manipulates essentially all of them into helping him. He's only in it for the fame. He wants to be on 60 Minutes, he says. He wants to be famous. He's doing it in the name of science, but really it's for personal gain and glory. Yeah, interesting that... I've <laughs> I don't, how do they expect to get famous from this? I mean, they go, uh, they're worried, the whole point they're doing this so secretively in the weirdest location ever, by the way. They're doing it secretly because naturally, if they were caught, they'd all lose their licenses or possibly even get arrested. Is that fair to say? <laughs> yes, while doing it in the university. Yeah. So, well, they've recorded all this, they show it on television. Okay, all five of them have flatlined and they all have these weird experiences. They go on television and they say, look, we, we have video footage of all of us dying and then being come back, coming back to life. And we all had, we all had hallucin, that's hard to say. We all had hallucin, oh my God, what's that word? Hallu, ah! Halloumi, no, hallucinations. We all had hallucinations while, and, uh, while we were dead. And then 60 seconds is like, yeah, so what? Uh, all this proves is that y'all killed each other and brought yourselves back to life. You can, you, you'd still, they would still lose their licenses. Well, I think the point would be that they would be saying we went beyond just hallucinations. We are, we were actually brain dead. So anything we experienced after being brain dead must not be a hallucination. It must be uh, another world or the world beyond or whatever. And also, they had these when they were brought back. They brought back these experiences with them. I think they're. I think the point is though that they're willing to risk losing their licenses almost for the fame and the glory and making a difference in the world of science and also to satisfy their own curiosity. I think that their that their line of thinking is well, if we lose our licenses, well, that's that's pretty crappy. But if this goes well, we'll be so famous anyway. It won't actually matter. Yeah, but they have absolutely no proof of their experiences. To I mean, the point they're videotaping it, which. The, p- the point of videotaping themselves is so they have proof. But that doesn't prove anything about their experiences. They can say all they want and people are going to go, okay. And if you think about it, it's incredibly irresponsible because you look at someone like Rachel, who's probably the most vulnerable of the 
of the five characters you know um she's doing it for personal because of her father and i have thoughts about that which we'll talk about maybe when we get to her but if this if they went on and we're like oh yeah we all died and we had these experiences think how many and this this became international news think how many people would do that and then would die because they were trying to reach people they died and you know they weren't as skilled at bringing them back i mean all five of them are very talented doctors and they struggled pretty much every time bringing one of them back they struggled so think about how irresponsible the effects of this would be if yeah okay they go on the news and they say oh yeah we died and we saw amazing things and it was a bit scary and then suddenly across america or the world people who aren't medical professionals start killing themselves <laughs> i'd say the euthanasia lobbyists would be <laughs> would have a stronger case but yeah it could lead to increased risks of suicide among the population i think though that there's not necessarily anything ethical about this i mean your man nelson Kiefer Sutherland is quite unethical throughout this entire entire movie he manipulates people into doing things they don't want he has no he doesn't seem to have any remorse uh, after he comes back from his flatline about what happened with billy mahoney who we'll talk about a bit later he withholds the fact that he's having these awful experiences from the others and allows them to go under and flatline uh, knowing that they'll bring back similar experiences. So there's nothing necessarily ethical about what they're doing here. Um, and they don't, they're, they're short-sighted. You know, they're, they're, they're saying, if we do this, if we can prove it, we'll be rich and famous and everything else is secondary. They're not thinking about a wider impact on society. No, they're certainly not. Can we talk a little bit about Rachel? Because I have thoughts on her. She's the only girl in the group. And the reason for her attraction to this is is because of daddy issues. Uh, is that a bit cliche? I don't think it's daddy issues. <laughs> she lost a parent in uh, very tragic circumstances. And the movie, in two situations, highlights the impact that children experience through other people telling them certain things. So in the case of Kevin Bacon's character, we see that... Um, his bullying uh, of this young girl, the internal monologue that she built uh, around herself by calling herself an ugly little uh, ugly little child uh, that she kept with her for her entire life. The fact that in Julia Roberts' uh, character's case, uh, the child was told by their mother that it's her fault that her father is after running out and killing himself. So I don't think it's daddy issues. I think it's uh, a feeling of responsibility for the death of a parent, which would be an awful thing to carry with you through your life. But she is obsessive about death and everything she does in her in the hospital uh, revolves around death. Now, she's very nice about it. She's a very compassionate person. She's very kind. She spends a lot of time with um, an old lady who's coming to the end of her life. Quite, she, She's quite old. She actually, her name is Susan French. She was also in Star Trek. woo but she she died actually a couple of years after this. Oh no, about a decade after this actually. She lived for a lot, quite a, quite a while after this. But yeah, I mean her her. I think where Kiefer Sutherland's character is doing this for the wrong reasons, her character is doing this for the right reasons. Yeah, just while you mentioned the elderly lady, so Julia Roberts has been spending loads of time with her and has been saying it'll be okay, that the voices are there to guide you, it'll be a nice experience. And then Julia Roberts flatlines and has a horrible experience and then has it in her head to find this lady who is going to die. You know, it wasn't, wasn't flatlining for the crack. And then 
wants to tell her it's horrible when you die it's going to be a horrific experience ah! <laughs> yeah I've, I've written down here in my notes she wants to tell a, a poor old lady that she's nothing to look forward to that she's going to spend eternity essentially in hell what a bitch <laughs> well she's doing it I guess out of she's not doing it in the right frame of mind I disagree with you though I do think Julia Roberts character has daddy issues um, whether you think that's cliche or not I mean she, her entire motivation is grief of her father so I think that is the definition of daddy issues but if it was grief, grief over her mother it would it would still be the same effect you know it's it's the death of a parent yeah but the fact is it's not grief over her mother it's grief over her father interesting they never really say why she blames herself like we, we it's, it's not subtly done it, they literally show a flashback of her mother screaming at her saying it's all your fault i thought that might have been a bit better if it wasn't if it was shown rather than told as in there was julia roberts had like had this feeling that her she hadn't done something as a child which obviously wouldn't have been her fault or whatever that led her daughter her father to take his own life and then she learned that no it wasn't her why did she think why did her mother blame her why was was that something i missed the mother obviously knew that the, the father was a drug addict as it turned out he had come home from war and had somehow gotten into drugs there was a door at the top of the stairs that she was forbidden to go go into um, but one day she decided to go in anyway, which led to uh, her father her, her father jumping up and running out and running out of the house with shame um, and running into the car, getting a gun and shooting himself. Um, so the fact that she was, wasn't allowed into that room, plus her mother, and we only see her mother saying to her um, in that one, one instance, it's all your fault that the dad is after going in and killing himself. But that was probably her life then you know her mother probably always blamed her uh, for the death of the father um again it goes back to the these internal monologues that we create which are totally not correct necessarily but we build them up from what other people have told us throughout our lives and that's a common theme between her her character and uh Kiefer, or captain bacon's character yeah i guess that makes that does make sense actually um that that actually you might have actually answered another question i had so do you think julia roberts as a child saw that her father was an addict and repressed that memory or was that new information that her father that she learned uh, after her flat laying experience and i'm curious i have another follow-up to this so i just want to see what your answer is for that no, I think the I think that's new information that she learned. So after Julia Roberts comes back, she experiences um, apparitions of her dead father a couple of times. There's one in the morgue, which causes her to run out of a of a an autopsy, uh, and then there's a couple in her house in the bathroom. I don't think that she ever realized before that her dad was a drug addict, and I think that's something that him he and the mother would have kept from her. So I think that's part of the realization that she has that actually no it wasn't me it was the shame my father felt because he was a drug addict okay well that, that's what i picked up the first time but now i'm actually starting to think perhaps she did see that her father was an addict and she repressed it and the reason i'm, I'm saying that now is because otherwise this film is inconsistent in uh, what it's telling us is happening during the flatlining process when kevin bacon sees um the little girl on the train you at first you might think it's a ghost but she's still alive 
and he goes and apologizes and i think that's probably my favorite scene in the whole film and um, i think he's so sweet and he genuinely feels remorse he's not just saying it for the sake of it um he does feel guilty about it and i think the scene is lovely when she says i'm not that ugly girl anymore and he says you're never lovely it's a lovely scene it's a really nice scene but so that makes me think that that's that's not a ghost because she's not dead and when uh nelson keith or sutherland's character is being harassed by this little boy and he's physically getting damaged i mean it, it does seem like it's a ghost but then there could be not because when kevin bacon sees him he's just wrestling on the ground you could argue that he's so consumed by guilt that he's self-harming and he's just getting this hallucination so that's consistent with the fact that it's not a ghost it's more just subconscious memories coming back to haunt you and it's more violent with Keith Sutherland because his past is uh, much more uh, horrific than Kevin Bacon's when we come to Julia Roberts past if she learns new information so if she never knew that her father was a heroin addict and this apparition tells her new information well that has to be a supernatural element because how could she possibly learn um, new information from something that's, unless it's subconsciously something she did see and forgot? So then, if that's the case, is this a supernatural thing? If so, well, why is this little girl who is who is still alive visiting Kevin Bacon? Um, or is it all, what's happening, basically? <laughs> I think it's... When the old lady who's in palliative care that Julia Roberts wants to, you know, crush her dreams of uh, there being a heaven, she talks about uh, the voices that she hears at night saying that, you know, you can let go, you can come with us, you've told everybody that you love them. And she says, I have, I've told everybody that I, I love them and that, you know, I'm comfortable essentially with with how I'm ending my life. The experiences that they have then when they flatline are essentially wake-up calls from the from the beyond to say you have unresolved issues here um, in some form and you need to you should go and sort these out before you try and come over here to the other side so I think there is a supernatural element to it now you see Keith, Keith Sutherland's character struggling with himself you don't see him struggling with a little ghost uh, in a later in a later scene which suggests that it is in their own heads but that there is a there's a there's a supernatural element which is making them confront these things in the real world. In Julia Roberts' case, however, she already feels a huge amount of remorse for something that wasn't her fault, and it gives the ghost of her father from the beyond the opportunity to apologize and explain what happened to her. So it's it's coming at it from two different angles, where the living have unresolved issues, where the living uh, or where the dead have unresolved issues which affects the living. Okay, good answer. Very good answer. I have to say, when you when you initially picked this film, I just assumed this was a straight-up horror. They, they flatline, and then something comes back, as in monsters or ghosts, poltergeists, come back and just haunt them. Um, I didn't think each uh, character was going to have such personal experiences. Um, and I think that makes for a much more interesting film. Only scene in this film that actually gave me a fright um was the scene where julia roberts sees her dead father in the mirror that was i wasn't expecting it and it was quite late into the film so you kind of feel at this stage oh i know what kind of film it is it was scary that that scene 
Yeah, and I can, I can, <laughs> I, I jumped at that as well, and I can empathize because sometimes, you know, if you're in a house by yourself or something, and you're down in the wash basin wa- washing your face, and you look up and you're like, please don't be anything in the mirror, please don't be anything in the mirror, uh, and then you're like, oh, maybe I just won't look in the mirror, I'll just go over to the towel and wipe my face. So yeah, that was a bit jumpy. <laughs> do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Aww. Um, can we talk about Joe for a minute? who is played by William Baldwin, who who reminds me a bit of Luke Wilson. Isn't he a bit like Luke Wilson? Um, Owen Wilson's brother. He was, um, he's in Charlie's Angels. Uh, he's in loads of films. He's, he looks like a slightly better looking Owen Wilson. Anyway, he looks like him. He is a pig, an absolute pig in this film. And I don't think the film punishes him enough for his actions he is um recording himself having he's has a fiance uh yeah he's having sex with any any woman who look his way and not only that he is recording these women um secretly and keeping them and i guess watching them i don't know just from for a perverse thrill there is a funny scene where it's, I think it might be the first scene we see him. He's having sex with this girl, and uh, Nelson phones and leaves a message on his answering machine, um, and mentions on the answering machine, "Don't forget the camera." And the girl like instantly says, "What camera?" As if she knows she's been recorded. I don't know what person would just jump to that conclusion. Yeah, it's a bit ridiculous. So this guy Joe, he's flatline number two. We've kind of skipped forward with Julia Roberts and going back to this guy now he's flatline number two and his experience is when he goes under it sort of brings him through his relationship with women yeah the first few are older women so I suppose that's like maternal I think it starts from his first experience of a breast which is his mother's nipple uh, breastfeeding and then it's all these kind of older ladies who seem to be looking into his cots or going goo goo gaga or whatever um, and then moving on to more erotic experiences with women and then focusing very much on breasts and boobies and all that stuff. He's a tip man. When he comes out of his flatline, he says that the experience was very pleasant, it was very nice and almost erotic. And Kiefer Sutherland's character asks him specifically, uh, are there, was there any negative uh, element to his experience, which to which he says no. But later on, then we see that his punishment i suppose or what he needs to atone for is obviously all these women that he's sleeping with while he has this fiance who he does seem to care about and to love he's just being a not very nice person by cheating on her constantly <laughs> well i mean cheating on her is is bad but like i i think the the recording goes way beyond cheating on his fiance that's that's illegal that's abuse that's that goes like leagues beyond cheating on his fiance. And one of the things I do like about this is that actually his fiance acknowledges that that she's not leaving him for cheating. She's leaving on him. She's leaving him for his horrific treatment of these women. Yeah. So it's the disrespect and the lack of trust. You know, he obviously had gained these girls' trust and then violated that trust by secretly recording them. He does mention that he's doing this to his uh, to his friends, and they don't seem to have the kind of reaction that you'd expect. Certainly, Kevin Bacon just kind of brushes over it and goes, "Okay, well, has anybody else had a negative experience?" But his punishment, you see, I think that each of the characters, Kiefer Sutherland, Kevin Bacon, and Joe, and Joe, uh, what's the name, William Baldwin's character, they all kind of have 
time limits on the amount of time they've been giving to atone um, to go back and to say I'm sorry. Alec Bald or I keep saying Alec Baldwin. William Baldwin's character's time essentially runs out, and his punishment is that his fiance finds out and breaks it off with him, and now he's alone. Kevin Bacon realizes quite quickly that there's unfinished business here. I have to go. I have to apologize to this person, um, and he does that, and he f- says that he feels his weight has been lifted from him. And Kiefer Sutherland's character is so stubborn and egotistical and obstinate and quite a an awful person really uh he refuses to apologize throughout the whole film to show any remorse for what they're doing any remorse for not telling them about these negative experiences or any remorse about what he did as a child to this other kid billy billy mahoney so and as he gets closer to this time limit the attacks keep increasing the level of uh, violence against him keeps increasing and the frequency keeps increasing so I think they're on a time limit and if they don't atone by a certain time essentially the victim's fate becomes their fate yeah I don't think that Joe's punishment his fiance dumping him is equal to his crime of recording this woman I think he needed a much bigger slap on the wrist than that do you know what the Bechtel test is I've heard of it the Bechdel test is a, a film um, or media test. I, 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 sh- I need to do the proper research. It was invented, I think, in the 70s or 80s. Um, and it's it's part of a feminist theory, a film theory. And uh, incredibly, most films, most films fail this test. And all it is is that a film should include two named female characters having a, uh, a swap of more than one line of dialogue that isn't about a man or men. And apparently, like ninety, not ninety, I think sixty to seventy percent of films fail this. But this film passes. Do you know when it passes? Oh, good question. Um, Julia Roberts' character does she interact with many other women? I don't know. Tell me, enlighten me. Uh, it passes a few times. It passes between her and the old lady who is named, and it passes between Julia Roberts and. The girl, Beth Grant's character isn't named, but the girl who's with her, she's in a scene later on with, with Joe, um, and he calls her by name, I think he calls her by name. So she does have a name. So it passes, not with flying colours, um, but it does pass. But it is interesting that I think Julia Roberts' character is very much damseled in this film. Yeah, like all the men are kind of like, oh no, you can't flatline, you're a girl. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the five-man band trope. Do you know what the five-man band trope is? Yes, I do. The five-man band trope is a, a trope in media that lots of things follow. And this film follows it perfectly. And this trope usually involves five characters. And they all, each one of them performs a different role in the group. There is the um, main character, the lead. That is the usually the person who instigates the action and is the most headstrong character the second uh, character is the lancer they are usually a foil or a not an opposition but kind of an, an alternative pov to the main character then there is the strong guy who in comics or superheroes is often the brute um usually a bit dumb 
usually a bit of a fool. Then there is the smart guy, who is the often comic relief and often comes up with technical things. And then there is the female, because <laughs> there's always traditionally there's always usually uh, uh, just one woman character. In more modern media, that's replaced with the heart. Okay, and that's usually the character that is all the characters kind of have a bond with this particular character and they and kind of unites them together and is more of a passive presence in the group. So in Guardians of the Galaxy, for example, we have Star-Lord, who is the main. Gamora, who is the, the girl in that group, is actually the Lancer. Then the strong guy is Dra- Dax. Smart guy is Rocket Raccoon. And the heart is Groot. So just curious, can you guess who who fits what role in this film? So who do you think is... Well, this is easy. Who's the main Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. Who is the Lancer? The Lancer, uh, Kevin Bacon. Yeah, well done. Who is the <laughs> Who is the heart? Julia Roberts. Yeah. Who is the strong guy? Joe, I suppose. Yeah, because he's the he's brute, he's dumb, he's the fool, and who's the the smart comedy relief? <laughs> the other guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, Randy, Randy, yeah. So I just thought it was interesting that it follows this almost to a T. Um, and it, it, yeah, I just find that kind of interesting when, when films do that. X-Men, the original X-Men lineup does it. Buffy did it as well. I just thought it was fun to mention it for this. So I've, I've pretty much mentioned everything, I think, in terms of the story. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention about the story? I noticed, do you know the scene where Julie Roberts is flatlining on Halloween and there's a bonfire outside and there's all these people dancing around outside after? Yes, that reminded me of the purge. Oh yeah, kind of. I suppose I thought it was weird that they would allow that this university would allow a massive bonfire on the steps leading up to the main hall. Yeah, logic is weird in this universe. They also mentioned that it's a full moon on a Halloween night, uh, and um, the nerd that I am, I googled and there wasn't a full moon that year. <laughs> um, also, that only happens like every couple of decades on Halloween. It's very rare for a full moon to be on Halloween night. I'd like to talk a little bit about the bidding war, which we haven't really mentioned. So between this five-man band, as you say, each of them has a turn to go under, and they start bidding with extending the amount of time that they're going to go under. Um, So Kiefer Sutherland's obviously first, because he's the one who kind of invents this idea, and uh, nobody else, I suppose, is willing to risk their life in the first instance. But then Julia Roberts starts by saying, well, Kiefer Sutherland's character went over for, under for a minute. I'll go under for a minute and a half. Uh, but Joe says, well, actually, I'll go under for 150, which Julia Roberts then says, fine. OK, I'm not going to go under. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not that brave yet. Then uh, Julia Roberts, after Joe goes under, says, I want to go under for two minutes. And Kevin Bacon being either maybe misogynistic or out of some sort of... Um, concern for this woman that he is falling in love with uh, says well I'll go under for 210 she says 220 250 you know so they they keep outbidding each other Julia Roberts always being the last person to <laughs> or the the person who's bidding to go under but is losing it what do you think about this bidding war with with time and life and um between the various characters I not not a whole lot it's just a uh it's just a means to pick the next person, I think, um, and whoever was willing to do it longer. Keeper Sutherland says that if they don't, it, it doesn't make sense to do it shorter. They have to keep going longer so they learn information. But I don't know. I don't. I don't think a whole lot about it. I just think it was a 
a method that Joe Schumacher used to have them pick who is the next to go under. Do you think it's a bit misogynistic that they're all trying to look out for the girl and trying to not allow her to go under in the first place? To be fair, uh, Joe doesn't really give it a shit about her concern. He just wants to go next because he wants his fame and fortune. <laughs> you can look at it that way. Nelson doesn't care um, either way. And Randy doesn't want to go under. So it's really only Kevin Bacon's character who is doing it to protect her. And you could look at it that way. But I think he just cares about her and the thing is she after he goes under it's obvious she's going to go next and then she's going to have to go longer so it's a very short-term plan yeah if she if they had just let her go second they would have been looking out for her more <laughs> exactly <clears throat> had she gone under second she would have been much more honest about her experience than the others and they probably would have saved themselves a whole lot of trouble but ah that's i think it's just a plot device i don't think much better I don't think we talked a lot about the Billy Mahoney character and Kiefer Sutherland and exactly why he's being terrorised. Because he killed the little boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think we actually mentioned that. Um, Well, I I, I just say it's his atonement and um, he has... It's all about karma, uh, seemingly. The sins of the past, um, or in Julia Roberts' case, just kind of unfinished business or or kind of resolving... resolving, um, troubles from your past and he had he killed a little boy be it an accident and a dog for that matter and he's well i think he just crippled the dog well okay regardless he he you know he he killed a little boy yeah so what well, well, i don't know what else do you want to say like he yeah what what is there to say about it he's very slow to actually admit that anything that he did anything wrong he actually goes up uh when he's like, he, he won't say sorry. He thinks Kevin Bacon's nuts for finding this girl to say that he's sorry. He uh, he goes to the Billy Mahoney's grave and he uh, effectively says, you're a little shit. I thought I did my uh, penance for this when I was sent off to uh, foster care. Um, almost how dare you come back and do this to me now. He's very, very slow at admitting fault and admitting guilt and remorse and saying that... He, he's sorry for for something that he's done yeah he's in denial i think um and that's why it takes him so long then it's not until he flatlines for the second time in the climax that he actually says i'm sorry when he's falling from the tree literally about to die and i think by him saying i'm sorry that's all that's all billy wanted he just wants an apology because as soon as he as soon as he does fall billy it's like, oh. Would it not be better for Billy then, rather than to come back and kick the shit out of him, to um, just say, I think you should apologise for that. Uh, I don't think that was a very nice thing to do. <laughs> I don't think that would be as good a film. <laughs> Some of the flat lines and this little boy goes, you need to apologise. That was not... Remember that time you killed me? That was really rude. So, yeah, I would have gotten an apology quicker. But maybe he had to come to that realisation himself think so also was that little kid was he was he wearing like demon makeup or was it just the lighting there were some scenes where it looks like he was wearing like scary makeup no i think it was just the lighting he always had a bit of a serious face on himself when he he did have a kind of peculiar smile though when he was kind of laughing at uh Kiefer sutherland's character uh he did look quite menacing Mm, you did yeah there's also an element of uh premonition in the movie which um in Kiefer Sutherland's case, when he goes under, 
he has this image of this sort of underground basement area, which is kind of lit in blue, where he meets this young boy, uh, Billy Mahoney. Then when he comes out of the flat line a day or two later, he sees this injured dog um, and follows him down into this, I think it's some sort of, it's almost like some sort of underground car park or something, where he then encounters the boy who uh, attacks him for the first time. And that happens a couple of times, I think, throughout the movie, where um, when Julia Roberts' character sees her dad for the first time in that room, it's very much the same room as in her apartment, where she meets and uh, meets her father again, and they apologize and make up. And in Kevin Bacon's case, when he goes under, he sees this train, and he's on a train, and he sees this little girl, and then in the waking world, or in the real world, again, he's on the train and that's where he encounters the girl again uh, who starts rambling off these incredible insults to him, which I should have written down. It goes on for five, five minutes. She's just like saying, needle, needle dick, oh, you, whatever. I'm not very good at that. <laughs> yeah, um, I suppose that would that would help your argument that it is supernatural rather than subconscious um, and psychosomatic effects that they're experiencing. Yeah, if they're getting premonition, yeah. Um, I have a question for you. Okay, Connor. If we were to flatline you and I, what do you think you would see? <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Uh, what sins from the past would come back to haunt Connor? Go for it. Oh my God, that's a hard question. I don't know. Uh, I'm so I'm so pure, uh, pure at heart. I'd have to think about that and prepare something. I can't. I actually can't think. Well, what would yours be? I was thinking about this last night, and I was going to ask you, but and I should have asked you, so you'd have time to think about it. But I was trying to think when I was a child. Did I? I, don't, I never really picked. <laughs> we might get loads of emails from people from my past now saying you bullied me as a child, Paul. I don't know. I, I, I never really did, and I've never really fallen out with anyone uh over well i have fallen out with like obviously it happens but like i don't think i don't i don't feel i did anything horrific or anything <laughs> the only thing i can think of is i lived in scotland for a year and i like i went on a date with a with a boy and he was very keen and i ghosted him <laughs> yeah he actually told me he loved me on the first he was a bit drunk and he told me he loved me on the first date and i was like fucking hell and he he rang me a couple of times after. I did that. <laughs> he rang me a few times and he he texted me a good few times. And I normally I would be really good normally, and I'd just be like, you know what, it's just not working out for me. But for whatever reason, I was just like, oh no, this I don't know. But I won't tell you his name. But let's say his name is Peter, right? This is what I feel, really feel really bad about. Let's say his name is Peter. Shortly after. I met I made a friend whose name was also Peter and myself and the second Peter were really good friends and I went out for drinks with some of my friends from college on St. Patrick's Day and I'd had a few beers and I was like oh let's invite Peter so I went to my phone and I I phoned the first Peter but it was actually ghosted boy whose number I stupidly kept and I was a bit jarred and I says Peter, ah, how are you? Come on down, we're down in this pub here. Come on down for a few, a few drinks. And he was like, Paul, um, I didn't quite get his, recognize his voice. I thought 
my Peter sounded a bit different, but I was whatever. And I was like, yeah, come on down. There's a gang of us. We'd love to see you. And he was like, oh, um, okay. Uh, it'll probably be another hour. And that's when I coughed. And I was like, oh, we'll be, we'll be gone in an hour. We'll be gone in an hour. Never mind. Bye. And I hung up. And I, I do feel a bit guilty about that. <laughs> so that's what I'd flatline about. <laughs> <laughs> Not the worst thing in the world, in fairness. I don't. I, there's nothing wrong with that, really. I mean, if he just if he freaked you out a bit, he freaked you out, and you just said, "Well, that's not for me," and sorry, see you later. I mean, that's not that's not too bad. Okay, you make me feel better now. Go on. You must have something that you feel a bit funny about. Uh, I'm trying to think. I was actually trying to think of dates that I had. Then did I do anything particularly bad on them? And I don't think so. Not really. I mean, I had an experience with a boy, but he was the case as well. So. No, that's a. I'll tell you what. I'll think about it, and I'll come back in the next episode. And it's the first thing that we can talk about. Okay, that sounds good. Well, I think we've 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 flogged that film to death. So I think <laughs> I didn't even mean that pun. So I think we could maybe look at our list, which so far. Oh, you want to say something else? I want to talk about about Joel Schumacher. He had a bit of a golden era back in the in the 90s. He did things like, well, he did Flatliners, which isn't terrible, in fairness. Um, but he did things like The Client, which was a great movie. He did... Uh, f- oh, he did Veronica Gerwin. Yeah, well, hold on now. We're, hold on. So in the early 90s, he did uh, The Lost Boys. That was with, also with Kiefer Sutherland, which I think uh, it was generally quite well regarded that was actually 1987 but it was kind of coming into the 90s a cult film as well actually then he also did falling down which was a great movie uh in 1993 with michael douglas and robert duvall do you you ever see that years ago yeah i didn't i don't i don't love it i thought it's fine i'd probably like it more now i saw it when i was a kid yeah, I mean, it's essentially about this uh, guy who's, uh, I think he's fired or he's just unemployed and he has a bit of a mental breakdown, but it's very good. He did The Client, which was an excellent movie, which I think we should watch um, with Susan Sarandon and Tommy Lee Jones and Brad Renfro, actually, who I think is dead now. I think, yeah, he died in 2008. He was only 25. It's very tragic. Oh, he did one film that I really love, um, 8mm. That's a brilliant film. That's uh, that's probably my favourite Nicolas Cage film. Have you ever seen that? Uh, I think I did. I don't re- really remember it. And that was in 1999. But this is the thing about Joel Schumacher. He did uh, these really, really good movies, late 80s, early 90s. Then he did Batman Forever, which was okay. And then Batman and Robin, which was just awful. And then he kind of came back into his own again. He did uh, 8mm here. He did Tigerland with Colin Farrell. He had a bit of a love crush on Colin Farrell. He did uh, Phone Booth with Colin Farrell. Then he did Bad Company, which was, again, crap. So he just seems to do this up and down, up and down. No consistency in his work. I don't hate Batman and Robin. Get out. Get out magic kill i i know it's a terrible film i know it's not a good film and george Clooney is dreadful as batman but when i saw that when it first came out i think i preferred it to batman forever i liked uma thurman's poison ivy i I was it was kind of ridiculous and and not good but i 
it, it it actually was so bad that I enjoyed it. It was kind of on that threshold, and like <laughs> he gave him like bad nipples and bad butt. <laughs> yeah, it was camp. It was. I think it was trying to combine the nineteen eighties Batman films, uh, so Batman and Batman Returns, that kind of gothic style of Tim Burton, um, with the campness of the nineteen sixties TV show. It's funny, the, the Flatliners could almost be set in the same universe, as, or it could be set in the city of Gotham from the Batman Forever film. They both have all that neon, all that um, steam vents going off everywhere, big gothic architecture. I, I wouldn't be surprised if <laughs> the Batmobile had driven past Keith Sutherland behind those bikes in that scene. Yeah, and the weird lighting as well that kind of runs throughout Flatliners. The really annoying lighting that, you know in Kiefer Sutherland's apartment it's just blue constantly and flashing lights there's just constantly these kind of flashing lights everywhere or lights dimming and softening and going harder harsher but yeah I mean that kind of similar weird neon lighting runs through his his Batman films as well but I just think that he's so inconsistent as a director he goes he, he has really great movies great dramas and then just goes into this period of wacky zany craziness he also did that number 23 with jim carrey which i don't think was very good no he wrote the screenplay to the whiz which is terrible the musical whiz uh which i did when i was in school like won loads of tonys and it was considered a really good musical and then when they made it to a film they changed a lot of the songs and they changed a lot of the concept and it's dreadful so he that's his fault i'd say yeah, I, he wouldn't be a director. I would even the films that like his good films wouldn't be films that I'd ever need to see again. To be honest, he did the Phantom of the Opera as well, which actually I enjoyed that film. I think we need to be careful though. We don't want to slag off uh, all these directors too much in case this podcast becomes really famous and they want to come on uh, to the show. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Joe Schumacher's yeah, he's great. Yeah. yeah. Come on over, Joe. Okay, I think we should look to our list and start compiling it. So on number one on our list, we have Harold and Maud. Number two on our list, we have Donny Darko. So let's compare Flatliners uh, in terms of uh, script, performances, uh, soundtrack and music, direction and cinematography, and overall enjoyment. Uh, in terms of the performances, all solid performances, but nobody got me nearly as excited as... Um, uh, uh, Harold and Maude or even Danny Darko to be honest in terms of performances Kevin Bacon's probably my favourite from this particular film I think they all do a good job in their various tropes their five man trope uh, roles but yeah I mean there's nothing particularly standoutish about any of them to be honest um, no, this is all them doing their doing their standard this is a Julia Roberts role this is a Kevin Bacon role you know yeah. It's Judy Roberts being Judy Roberts and Kevin Bacon being Kevin Bacon. Being themselves. I do think Kevin's probably the best, but I find him, of all of them, probably my f- most the most charismatic actor anyway. So, yeah. What about the music? The music's interesting. The music goes through periods of being quite uh, ominous and, um, uh, yeah, I suppose gothic and church-like uh, to periods of being very pleasant and serene. Initially, when... Uh, Kiefer Sutherland goes under uh, and flatlines the music where he's kind of flying over these fields you see him flying over these fields is quite serene 
um, and quite pleasant. Again, Kevin Bacon flying over these mountains, Julia Roberts, I can't exactly remember, but um, all very pleasant, and then turns quite sharply into these darker images. These, It's almost as if they're 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 flying over... Th- you the music or the, 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 the cinematography here? Both. The music in the uh, when they when they flatline initially is quite serene and and pleasant, but then the music turns into this kind of quite menacing, church like gothic uh, music. I quite like it. It runs kind of consistently throughout. I thought the music was fine. I didn't think it was particularly pleasant. I thought there was a lot of bad eighties synthy music, not kind of which I can like. Like I thought the the synthy kind of music in films like. Aquaman was great, and I thought that 80s synth sound in It Follows was fabulous. Uh, I, I thought this was kind of the worst examples of that type of music. I thought the the more organ-style music was more successful, but, like, I'm not going to be downloading any of it. Then, okay, so what about... the, the Certainly the direction it was a strong direction. It, had a, it was a stylized choice, part of, uh, you know... Yeah, I think the direction was pretty strong, to be fair. I think the direction was fine. Um, I don't. I think there are parts, like you said before, where you're kind of like, "Why is he doing that? Or why is she doing that? Or that's a bit weird," which would kind of suggest that the you know that the direction in certain circumstances didn't really make sense. Like, why is Kevin Bacon jumping out the window? Why is Julia Roberts having a a, a group meeting about them all having these death experiences? I think that's more script issues though than the way it's directed and stuff. Even those things though, they made it seem weird and it had it created a consistently weird world, which I I guess I appreciated and, and enjoyed. So I think the direction. I'm kind of noticing that for all these, I'm like, yeah, fine, that's fine. Performance is fine, music fine. Um, you know, in terms of overall enjoyment, fairly average. Fine. Yeah, I mean, I think everything is a bit average in this movie, and uh, yeah, fine. You, you, it's 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 certainly a watchable movie. It's an interesting movie. Definitely watchable, and you know, lots of things to talk about. And I and I do think I actually think a remake of this film could have been fantastic because there's a really interesting idea here. I just don't know if it was super successful in what it was trying to say, but I think they obviously tried to make it into a straight up horror, which was the wrong thing to do that took the interesting elements and just made them bland i think well again i'm guessing because i haven't seen the new one okay so i think on our list we're going to say i think we're all going to both of us are going to be in agreement that it goes to number three yeah definitely number three and probably will continue to drop (laughs) (laughs) no maybe not maybe not yeah we'll see Okay, so uh, that's Flatliners, number three on our list. And that will take us to the fourth film in Cult Movies Month, Connor. Oh, this has been a long month. <laughs> um, what film have you picked? Uh, so I had picked a movie, when we recorded this first, I had picked a movie, Escape from New York. I had looked at a few different options then for changing it, because I said, well, we can always change it um, since we're recording this again. But no, I'm going to stick with Escape from New York. Okay. I initially oh um that's eighties, isn't it? Yeah, it's from the eighty-three, I think, or something like that. And it's a it's kind of an action adventure uh, dystopian future kind of Okay. Um my film, uh, I and when we did the last episode I had picked a <laughs> new for me and you were like, oh. and I decided not to do that because I don't it's too little film really to I think it will generate code for that status. So I've gone back in time. I thought it might be nice to do 
the original uh, Night of the Living Dead, the initial 1963, I think it is, the black and white one. That's for the credit is the first zombie film. Okay, interesting. I think I have actually seen that, but okay, fine. Let's flip our coin and see. Oh, well, what are you going to pick? Heads or tails? Um, I'm going to pick heads. I'm going to pick tails. How, uh, how interestingly, we were both on the same page there. Okay, you ready? <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't rat a tat enough. Clearly, the universe wants to watch Escape from New York and not uh, The Night of the Living Dead. Right, well, you won the first one, so fair enough. So, our final cult film next week <laughs> will be escape from new york so uh if you've listened this far thanks gosh it's nearly an hour and a half now we've been talking about flatliners the podcast is heavily edited <laughs> yeah so if you like this uh leave us a review hopefully we're gonna get this up on itunes and a few of the podcast sites we have to work out here to do that um but yeah and uh, give us a like subscribe all that jazz cheers take thanks guys okay bye